Well, hello. I got to tell you, watching my kids make the most of summer vacation this year in 2023 took me back to memories of summers during my own childhood, which is why I'm really glad where you're going to use this episode to kick off a really powerful arc this fall. And that arc is exploring the multiracial identity in America. And we'll tell you in a moment why this matters to those of you who are not multiracial, too. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Sasha. And a quick reminder for those of you who are new to listening to this show, the two of us are best friends who met over 25 years ago as undergrads at Harvard. Misasha is a lawyer and an amateur historian. I am Sarah. I'm a life coach and positive psychology enthusiast, and we're both moms to school-age kids. So my two girls with my white Canadian husband, and then Misasha has boys with her black American husband. And together here on the podcast and through our published book and through our speaking gigs, we illuminate stories and histories that let all of us listen, learn, and act to make the world a better place for this really amazing upcoming generation. So Misasha, I probably have, but I'm not sure I have. Have I ever shared stories of being this brown-haired, brown-eyed, light-skinned kid growing up in the suburbs of New York, not being able to play soccer or do Girl Scouts or have sleepovers on Fridays because I went to Japanese Saturday school like for 11 freaking years? Well, and also I love that you started with, have I ever shared stories? Because um, being your best friend of over 26 years, like, hell yes, you've shared those stories, <laughs> but I love it. You've got to keep sharing those stories. So let's hear it. Okay. Also, I said 25 plus in the intro. You just threw in 26 and you're making me feel a little bit older. <laughs> sorry. I'm just real accurate this morning. I'm oh. sorry. <laughs> well, I also took tea ceremony lessons. Right. If any of you have listened to anything about learned anything about Japanese culture, you know, like the green tea, the matcha, like I took traditional tea ceremony lessons. I watched my brothers take calligraphy lessons. I had my white American dad tell me that these restrictions that I had on me, right, not being able to sit alone at a beautiful place in a car listening to music when I was a moody teen because that was not safe enough for a girl, right? Or being told that one day I'd belong to a different family and I wasn't part of our family anymore because I was a girl and I'd marry out. Or having such a huge emphasis placed on behaving well and properly that I didn't feel like I could go to parties and kick around and relax like the other kids, right? My dad told me that all of these things were because we also had to honor and respect the culture that my mom grew up in in Japan. So I think it's safe to say that all of this made me feel, especially by the time high school came around, that I kind of belonged, but kind of didn't fully belong in the white American suburb that I grew up in. And I feel like I've talked a lot, but I really want to share one more story. And then I really want to hear yours too. I share this story because I feel like we've gotten a lot of great feedback from people who are biracial and have heard our stories. And they're like, we need to talk about this more. Because I talked about my time in America, but I think one of the most significant parts of my childhood is that I actually, yeah, I went to day camp in the US, but I spent oftentimes like a month or more in the summers living with my grandparents in Japan. And when I was little, they were like, what are we going to do with this elementary kid <laughs> for like two months? Well, great. The local schools are still in chess session. We're going to send her there. And so one year, which I remember really, really clearly, I was introduced to the elementary school at the field and I was put in my classroom and my classmates were fascinated 
by the scrunchies I had around my wrists and the matching pushdown socks I wore in alternating colors. All right. Um, yeah. <laughs> hold on. I'm going to, not that I didn't already date us, but I'm going to super date all of us right here. But this is definitely some punky Brewster energy that you had going on. <laughs> and if you don't know this reference... First of all, you need to stop everything that you're doing. Go look this up. Look at images of Punky Brewster. And now you've got to put Sarah's head, like juxtapose <laughs> Sarah's head on her body. And thank you. My job here is now done. I would love to say that this is a, I grew up on the East Coast. You grew up on the West Coast difference. But I think if you look at our styles over the years, it's more has to just do with that. But thanks. I'm going to say that maybe you wouldn't have embraced me, but they, the Japanese classroom, embraced me. And welcomed me. Hey, I loved Punky Brewster too, just P.S. Okay. All right. Well, maybe I was more American then than I expected. <laughs> but let me go back to that. Like, they were really interested. Like, this was my classroom of, I don't even remember how many kids, 20, 30 kids, but they were curious and I felt safe and they were asking questions and making me feel like I belonged. And then that day at dismissal, I was told to stand next to the school principal while the rest of the kids left the classrooms. And the kids from the other classes gave me, like, horrible side eye and some kids spat out the words gaijin kaide gaijin kaide and like it would turn into like this chant with a bunch of them as they're walking by which means foreigner go home so i was there listening to kids telling me as another kid like you're a foreigner go home so obviously i didn't already feel like i belonged in america totally and it was very clear here that i didn't belong in japan so i think in terms of my amateur psychoanalysis like i think on a deeper quieter level I didn't know where I belonged and what this whole in-group, out-group dynamic was all about. And I think that led me to basically be like, forget it. I've just got to carve my own path and figure out my life and my own belonging um, because it's not going to be handed to me like it is to other people. So with that and your lovely Punky Brewster interjection, do you have a story you want to share about when you felt really biracial? Um, yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing your stories. I hope that in sharing our stories, right? We, there are more and more of us who are able to share those stories because I think sharing that is so important because like you said at the end, it has to do with belonging, right? It has to do with who accepts you for you and who tries to put you in a box, which is I think such a common experience of being biracial or multiracial in this country, right? And it's impossible to fit neatly into that racial box. So, you know, for me, when I think of moments where I felt truly biracial, well, first of all, I have to say, and we talk about this sometimes when we do live events, but you and I feel very differently about that growing up. Like I always sort of felt very biracial. And, but there are certain moments, like not realizing that everyone didn't go back to another, like their, you know, parents' home country over the summers. I was like, oh, wait, not everyone's going back. To, it didn't have to be Japan, but I was just like, oh, where are you going for the summer? Oh, like both your, when you're visiting family, that's like in the US. Okay. I remember in fourth grade in particular, one kid telling me when we were learning about World War II and sort of the Pacific theater stuff that like it was partly my family's fault. And I was so confused because I was like, wait, aren't I an American? Like, I'm pretty sure I know what side we were on in that war. And yeah, I, I just I didn't know how to react, really. And, you know, in fourth grade, like you don't really have the vocabulary to react. So you just and at least for me, I would internalize all of that. I and mean, it would affect how I felt around people. You know, I, I think also, as we've discussed on the podcast, I have a very unique name, right, which my parents made up to be that biracial reflection, you know, all Japanese would think it's Japanese, all Americans think it's American. 
So that was a total fail because all Japanese think it's American. All Americans think I'm Russian. Like to this day, people are like, oh, Eastern European. I'm like, no, no, so wrong. You know, but you started off the podcast, Sarah, talking about, you know, why we do this for this next generation. And I think we went back to Japan as a family this summer, right? So now my kids are the ones who are like, oh, we go back to Japan to see family. And we had a really powerful moment there where my great uncle or my uncle, my kid's great uncle gave my kids who are black, Japanese and white, their own hunkle, like their own seal, which in Japan is like your signature, right? You use that seal, which is carved for you with, you know, and there's sort of different styles and you get these blessed and there are different ways in which they present, but it's very unique. It's something that is your official signature on all these documents. And so my uncle gave my kids that and and specially made for them. And he had it done in crystal and he like had it blessed at the shrine. And it was such a moment of belonging for them in our family that I was reassured much like, you know, I was reassured by my own parents that there are places that you will belong, right? Then you need to seek those places and find those places because being biracial or being multiracial is not easy. And there is no one path, right? Much like everything else, there's no one path. But to find the people who accept you for you, that is true belonging. Why I love you. Even <laughs> when you make fun of my clothes, at least you make for good advice about fashion and makeup for me, folks. <laughs> right. I think it's a balance. And you're welcome. I think what you were trying to say is thank you. Um, <laughs> love you. <laughs> but, you know, to take a bigger look, right, at what we're trying to do this season. And we're so excited to, you know, kick off this sort of arc, right, if you will, with our own stories and then segue into hearing from some amazing other people and really taking a deeper look into this. But we always like to ask the question, why, right? It's so powerful. So why is talking about the multiracial identity and deconstructing the misperception of the Asian monolith important and relevant to you listening? And Sarah, I love that you put this in at the start, because especially for you, who are listening, who are not multiracial, right? Because it's still very important. And it may not be about your belonging per se, or it might. Several things, right, on this. First of all, let's talk about the census. And I know we've talked about this in the past, but the United States is becoming increasingly multicultural and multiracial. And up until 2000, right? So for the first decades of our own lives, having to choose between checkboxes because you couldn't check more than one, the census finally allowed people to check more than one box in that 2000 census. So now in 2020, which was the latest census, more than 33 million Americans reported they belong to multiple races. And this, if you're doing the math, is over 10% of the population and has increased dramatically from the 9 million people who self-reported this back in 2010. But while it looks like there are more people who look um, nebulously ethnic in heavy air quotes, because I have had that directed um, to members of my own family, as well as myself, it's hard to predict what this actual growth, right, though that numerical growth is going to do. And we're not sure that without work and attention, this change in population alone is going to make our society more racially tolerant, like suddenly all those boxes disappear and everyone's like, be who you want to be. Right. And in fact, I think this is part of the fuel for some people who are talking about this like white replacement theory and are really, really fearful and in digging into more entrenched racist positions because of this 
demographic shift that the census is revealing. So I think that's a really important point, And I'm really glad you brought that up. Second thing to me, I mean, hello, I talk about thriving and human thriving and positive psychology all the time. So I think the second point that I really want people to understand is that belonging matters. And in case you hadn't noticed, the world is still very much on fire. Social science proves that mattering right? The sense of belonging and that your existence matters to someone. That's one of the most important pieces of human well-being that there is. So, I mean, I think you and I both shared in our stories, like with multiracial identities, well, where do we belong? And I think this idea of this question of like, how do we foster that culture of belonging and mattering for our society at large is going to be a really important one when it comes to discussing issues about race. If you want people to thrive, we have to take our racial presentation and our racial identities into consideration. And so I think we're going to explore this question on how every single one of us can do better to look out for ourselves and for other people. I think that's so important. I'm so glad you talked about it. And I think another one of the components around why this is so important is because of the restrictive legislation that has happened. And to be clear, like racist legislation that has happened in the past, right? There aren't that many biracial, multiracial ancestors that we can look to for wisdom, you know, because when we talk about ourselves and our own biracial journeys, we sort of call ourselves some of the OG biracial folks, right, in the United States, because, you know, at least we'd be legally recognized as biracial. And if you are not yet familiar with the Supreme Court's loving decision that made interracial marriages legal in 1967, which was only 56 years ago, and let's not forget that states like Alabama didn't actually ratify interracial marriages until 2000, and that loving decision happened, you know, just a handful of years before our own parents got married, right? Then you certainly will, because we will be discussing this. We've discussed it on the podcast before. We're going to go back into it because among those who reported two or more races, which is referred to often as multiracial, right? 32.5% were under 18 in 2020. So think about that growth, right? Think about how many more young people out there, including our own children, right? Identify as multiracial or biracial or two or more races. So as a result of all of that, we are here to build this multiracial community, to stand in solidarity with others and share the wisdom that we have learned while hopefully also learning from you. And that means all of you, right? About your experiences processing this. I love it. I love all of that. And so I think we wanted to share that why, Misasha's favorite question, because coming up this fall, we plan to interview and we will be sharing with you some must-know multiracial folks. We're going to be deconstructing history and misperceptions like the model minority myth and that false narrative of Black on Asian crimes. We really want to examine who's centered in conversations about Asians. We want to look at disability justice within the Asian community, the impact of immigration, the power of advocacy and change. And we're doing it from a personal lens, right? This whole arc is personal and you're not going to want to miss it this fall of 2023. We've had the show since April 2019 and we have spent a lot of time laying the groundwork for understanding racism in the United States, which we focused on purpose on the anti-Black racism we see here based on the foundation of slavery in the United States. So for us, we feel like it's time that we bring our personal experiences as biracial Asian and white women to the forefront now. We can, we're ready. It's time to layer on and deepen our understanding of not only what it means to be biracial here, but what it means to be American. And so we're thrilled that you're here 
for the ride. And I know you all missed this over the summer, but because in the end, it's still all of us, right? Or none of us. And that includes broader racial categories, right? And we are heading as a country, and I'm sure no one who's listening really needs a reminder about this, but we're heading towards a place where this concept will be tested constantly over this next year, if it's not being challenged daily already, which I'd argue that it is. Yeah. So please share us with your friends and colleagues and your family and tell them we're booking our speaking gigs into spring of 2024 right now. So please reach out if your company or organization wants to hire us or if you want to learn more about what we can offer. And make sure you're following the Dear White Women podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss this incredible arc coming up. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list.